Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Look, it's one thing when you're an actor to be warm and nice. Lots of performers out there play warm, nice people, are great at playing warm, nice people. And I mean, I'm no hot take artist, but there are also a lot of funny actors. But to combine the three, warm, nice, and funny, that's magical. And Mary Steenburgen has made a career out of it. She has more credits to list than we have time left on this show that just started, but some highlights. She played Will Ferrell's mom in Step Brothers. She played Will Ferrell's stepmom in Elf, Melvin and Howard, Back to the Future Part 3, 30 Rock, and she played Mary Steenburgen on Curb Your Enthusiasm. I got this last week. I bet they still have this. This is a man's jacket. Really? Yeah, I love buying men's jackets. This is a very nice item. I know. This this, thing. Look, it's like it's a half so, jacket, half shirt. I you know, don't even know what it is. I couldn't help but over here, <laughs> I happen to have one right Boy, here. Boy, you are good. <laughs> they are good at I Barney. you're 42. Exactly what this Barney is. salespeople, they're, they're practically psychic. You're good. Yeah? You are very good. <laughs> wow. I'm going to insist that you buy this. This is interesting, isn't it? It's like a shirt and a jacket. I think it's me. It's beautiful on you. You don't mind the two of us having the same coat? I would be so honored. Steenburgen is a legit legend. In her latest movie, she teams up with three other legends, Candace Bergen, Jane Fonda, and Diane Keaton. Book Club, the next chapter, is the second installment in the Book Club series. It's a story about four friends who are, yes, you've guessed it, in a book club together. In the original film, the four friends go on a journey of self-discovery after reading a particularly steamy bestseller. This time, they go on a literal journey. They're off to Italy. My guest Mary Steenburgen plays the character Carol. She is the group's free spirit, always up for an adventure. Let's play a clip from the new movie. In this scene, the gang's back together again. It's the first time they've seen each other in person for a while thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic. They're filling each other in on what's been going on in their lives. And Carol shares that she recently came across an old journal in her house. It's the journal they used to plan a girl's trip when they were younger, a trip that they never took. I found this. The travel ban is lifted. And I think we should all go to Italy. Italy? Whoa. I mean, I barely made it here. Yeah, I, 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 I can't go anywhere. Right? I'm a newly yeah. engaged woman, remember? Oh, that, that's it? We'll make it Viv's Bachelorette. Oh, I literally just got chill bumps. It's perfect. You want us to run around Italy like a bunch of teenagers? The book says ignoring the signs is what ruins a life. We can't no. reject our destiny. <laughs> Mary, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so, so happy to have you on the show. It was so fun to get to watch you goof around with three other geniuses in this movie. <laughs> oh, my God. They are geniuses, I'll tell you. <laughs> in all kinds of ways. Geniuses are having an amazing 
time, too, in life. I mean, they're glorious humans. And they're, you know what else? It's like all the things, I, I hated that on the ramp up to the first one, I did have a number of people, both men and women, say to me, wow, who's the diva going to be? Who's the tough one? Who's the one, you know, who's who's the one that's going to keep everybody waiting and all that? Who's the jock? <laughs> who's the burnout? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But there, but there was none of that. You know, they're, they're pros. They don't suffer fools lightly. They've done this for a long time. They still love it. They still care about it. They're not phoning it in. They have your back, you know, as an actor. You, you're looking at them and you're not looking at somebody, <laughs> I mean, which, you know, does happen, who's just dead-eyed waiting for their line to happen next. You're you're working with a real, live, fully realized human being. I have to ask you this, because there, look, there's a montage, there's a COVID montage at the beginning of the movie where everybody is talking to each other on video conferencing. Besides that, everybody's on screen almost the entire film. Right. And you're shooting largely on location, right? And, you know, you're a, a spring chicken of 70-ish. I know, but I was 69 when I made the movie. Thank so, you. Sounds yeah. nice. And um, I, I just think, like, part of making this movie is, if everybody's on screen all the time, like, that is a ton of work for an 85-year-old. Even one who's worked, like, it's not like Jane Fonda's ever stopped working, um, but like physically, like that's just a ton of work. And it was 104 degrees many of those days. They were having this now kind of infamous heat wave that there were fires that were just exploding out of nowhere because it was so hot. And um, and I loved my clothes. We loved all the clothes. They were beautiful. But Jane did get put in wool. So we have heard quite a bit about that. Even though <laughs> you've received feedback, <laughs> yeah, from her, uh-huh, all from uh-huh. her. Um, um, but the night, then we shot a scene at night where we kind of get stranded in the middle of nowhere on a lonely country road, and it was freezing. And she was very pleased with her wool suit that night, and I was not happy with my silk tank top. So, um, yeah. It all it all works out, you know. You all look super nice in the movie. Thank you. Um, let's talk about the neighborhood playhouse for a minute. Uh, oh yes, please. That's where you first studied uh, acting seriously to become a professional, mm-hmm. and um, a legendary acting school uh, in New York, led by one of the I don't know three most legendary acting teachers of the twentieth century, Sanford Meisner. Yeah. You studied directly with Meisner, right? I did. I did. I was one of the—I was the last class to study with him before he had um, his larynx removed due to his vast amount of smoking. So I remember his voice very well and the terror that it could strike in your heart, but also just— he was just brilliant. He was there was a reason why he was considered I do consider him the greatest American acting teacher. I 
I also spent some time uh, at the Actors Studio, and there were some good things about that too. But to me, Sandy was... Um, he taught something that was so tangible and not, it wasn't this esoteric experience. It was a very, um, he kept it as simple as possible um, because what he was trying to get you to do was to live in your truth as an actor. And it's real hard to do it because because your head gets in the way and your ego and your desire to be good and he found ways to almost trick you into acting before you realized you were acting. And his method, which is just, you know, incredibly simple, and a young girl from Arkansas who's, you know, 18 years old and has barely been in a city, that was me, um, could learn it and, and could understand it and could see the power in it. And um, I just, I felt so lucky. I was, that that's the school I applied to. And that's the only school I applied to and that I got in. Like years ago on this show, I talked to Allison Janney, who also went to the Neighborhood Playhouse. And um, one of the things that she and I talked about, about studying the Meisern technique was that um, you know the central the central building block training wise that Meisner innovated is this thing called the repeat the repetition game. Yeah. exercise yeah and I mean I'm I'll sort of briefly explain it to the audience not to you obviously you know better than I um, but it involves sort of uh, looking into the eyes of a partner and we could just do it if you want your yeah. hand, oh, your, yes, I do. Yes, your, I do. Your hands are in your lap. My hands are in my lap. Your hands are in your lap. My hands are in my lap. Your hands are in your lap. My hands are in my lap. Oh, I'm making you laugh. <laughs> you are making me laugh. I'm making you laugh. You're making me laugh. <laughs> I'm making you laugh. <laughs> so that's a tiny, tiny taste of it. When we when I first went up there from Arkansas and we started that. I wouldn't have been allowed to have jumped to your uh, I'm making you laugh quite yet. It was a few weeks of literally saying your hands are in your lap. Or in my case, the fir my first partner said, he said, those are baggy pants. And I remember for the first time opening my mouth, a young girl from Arkansas, and I said, these are baggy pants. And everybody started laughing at my accent. Um but slowly, by little by little, you do what you and I just did, which is I made an observation then about an effect I had on you. I made you laugh, and you repeated it. And then basically what's happening slowly, slowly, with little other parts to it that we don't need to go into, but he has you fully observing another person. So all my attention is on you. You didn't plan that you would nod just now. You're nodding because I just made you do it. So when when you're acting and you're not in your head and you didn't practice it in the mirror the night before and you didn't pre-plan it because you thought it would be brilliant, but you are, in fact, knowing what you know about the character, knowing how you feel about what's happened to them, and 
then trusting it and having a thing called actor's faith and putting all your attention on that other person and letting them make you do what you do. That's when magic can happen. And that's when every take is different. And um, I think it was, I think it was brilliant what he did. And by the way, the neighborhood playhouse is still an amazing school. And a very dear friend of mine, Pamela Muller is the director of it. She and I were in a comedy improv group when I got out of, um, out of the playhouse. And that's what I was doing, plus waitressing to pay the bills when I got my first movie. We have so much more to get into with Mary Steenburgen. Back after the break, it's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is Mary Steenburgen. She has starred in movies like Parenthood, Step Brothers, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, Ragtime, and innumerable others. Her latest is Book Club, The Next Chapter. It's a rom-com with an ensemble cast of Hollywood royalty. Jane Fonda, Candace Bergen, Diane Keaton, and more. It's out now in theaters. Let's get back to our conversation. What kind of improv comedy did you do after the Neighborhood Playoffs? We were in a little company called the Cracked Tokens. Cracked Tokens. There were five of us. We were all graduates of the Playhouse. The most important person that any of us knew was somebody that worked at the Bureau of Alcoholism of the city of New York. So we we were set up to go do little comedy improv shows for people who are drying out from booze and drugs and things like that um, all over New York. Bedford-Stuyvesant, Harlem, um, all, all over New York. And that's the weird thing that we did to, um, to entertain people. And um, it was terrifying. And it took me a little while to realize that the only way you're ever going to make people laugh is to not try to be like anybody that's ever made you laugh. You know, you just have to dig in there and find your own funny. And that it's in some ways way more personal than drama. You know, it's just that little razor's edge where it's funny or it's not funny. And, and it's super hard to do that. And it took me a little bit, but if you can make somebody laugh that's in that much pain, that's a very good training ground for, for uh, the pursuit of laughter. What was the show? Like, was there posts you had to hit? Like, did you have to at some point bring up, you know, acknowledging a higher power or like whatever. Well, this is what happened. We would literally let them tell us what we were going to do. I mean, we we were really pretty innocent at all this. And, you know, eventually after we did it for a while, we would sometimes have something slightly sculpted. And we'd be honest about that. But like, we're going to build on this or build on that idea. But in the beginning, we would just say, you know, what would you like to see? And to every single time we did it, they would say two drunks on a, a a bus bench, two drunks on a street corner. They always wanted to see themselves and reflected back. 
and um and it it was I mean, listen, the amount of times we fell flat on our faces, we kept on doing it. We got better and better. We eventually became the resident company at the Manhattan Theater Club. Still lucky if we got bus fare. That was our payment or something, you know. But um, we would perform there um, for people who were in between shows. It was it was that time on 73rd Street. And um, we would do shows in the cabaret room. And um, someone saw me in there. And um, it was actually Chris Guest's mom, Jean Guest. And I did, um, I'd written based on some improvs that I'd done a monologue about um, a woman from Arkansas had come to New York for the first time, which is, you know, basically remembering everything that I had wrong about New York when I got there. And um, people found this character very funny, and she did, and she had me go to um, to an amazing casting person named Gretchen Rennell, and it's a long story after this, but through that, I was able to audition for Jack Nicholson and got my first film. And that was after about six and a half years of working at Doubleday Bookstore, working at various restaurants in New York, and finally working at the Magic Pan. The Magic Pan was actually such a little haven to work at this this i i'm i was in a little fake french outfit serving up crepes you know and uh it was such a haven because the fitzgeralds this amazing couple that ran it loved actors and appreciated how hard it was for us to make auditions and still get to wait tables and they just they loved actors, so most of us in there were actors, and you could do the day shift, night shift, or in my case, most of the time, both shifts, because I always needed money. And and uh, that's where I was working when I went from that to being the lead in a movie opposite the biggest movie star of our time. You've worked extraordinarily consistently for decades, and, you know— there's a part of my job where I just like look at a long list of credits sometimes and I'm like, man, I want to just do 15 minutes on every single one of these, but I picked some. Okay. One of them is Clifford. <laughs> uh, Clifford is a movie where uh, Martin Short, where very middle-aged, frankly, Martin Short, <laughs> like younger middle-aged, but still middle-aged, Martin Short plays a 10-year-old, I think yeah. it is, yeah, uh, alongside Charles Grodin, who just plays a Charles Grodin-type character. Exactly. And um, I didn't see it. It came out when I was a kid, and I did not see it when I was a kid. In fact, I did not see it until... <laughs> My friend Tom Sharpling and uh, the occasional guest host of this show, Julie Klausner, uh, convinced me to watch it as an adult man, uh-huh. as a 30-year-old or whatever. Yeah. And it is, if anything, more bonkers than that 
description suggests. Yeah. And it's also really good. <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> I, you know, my, my son's a director and he has a group of friends that, that will ask actors to endure watching two of their movies to pick their favorite, to pick their best and their worst. And I picked Melvin and Howard as my best, but, but my son picked Clifford, not because he thought it was the worst, but because it was really important to him that everybody see how weird it is. And it, it is beyond weird. And, um, and for me, I'm such a fan of Marty Short's both personally and professionally that, you know, just anything you would have asked me to do, I would have said yes to, including, you know, walking along with me in heels and him in a trench next to me so that that he was exactly the height of my breast, which he was always sort of nuzzling up into. <laughs> that really is. That is, that is like such a big part of the movie. I know. Is him as an adult man playing a child sort of nuzzling into your bosom. Yeah. And he, I'm, you know, I, he has this crush on me and, um, and it's just, it's so stupid and it's so, uh, yeah, bonkers, your word is a perfect word for it. And I just remember, you know, I will I will go a long way for a laugh. I really will to laugh by that. I mean, I love to laugh. And so, of course, it was a total gift. I mean, they really didn't need to pay me. I just enjoyed doing it so much because it was so stupid and funny. And Marty is so endlessly endlessly hilarious i mean it's also like terrifying like watching the movie the film, it is kind yeah, of scary I mean, like, many of like many of martin short's greatest comic performances <laughs> really go up to and often slash typically cross the line into is this actually upsetting <laughs> <laughs> i love that yeah it kind of is now that you mention it especially when you imagine that that is that you're in charge of that child, which Charles Grodin, and to a lesser degree, we end up being. I mean, it's really the bad seed, you know, on steroids. It really allows, that movie really allowed you to showcase something that you are really great at, which is not just being like, warm and pretty in the face of people around you being weird but like <laughs> being able to both do that and be specific enough that you get to be funny too you know what i mean like i think especially in movies where there's a pretty lady and dudes acting crazy often the pretty lady just only gets to be pretty and that's the end of that and you know maybe she gets to smile some and I'm all in for that with you. Please, can, you're smiling right now, and I'm <laughs> my heart's palpitating. But no, I'm just I'm just thinking about stepbrothers. Oh yeah, <laughs> sure, <laughs> exactly. Um, because that was I don't know if that's on your little list of movies that you chose 
to talk about, but it was another of the great personal, you know, wrapped up with a bow package. Here you go, Mary Steenburgen. You've survived the business. Let's just give you something fun as a gift. And that was, Step Brothers was that for me. Somebody's awfully quiet back there. I'm not going to call him dad. Brennan, you're 39 years old. I would not expect you to call him dad. Well, I'm not going to, ever. Even if there's a fire. Well, Step Brothers is amazing because it's barely a movie. Like, it is It is really basically just uh, a bunch of weird things happening uh, with a bunch of geniuses on screen and behind the camera as well. Directed by a genius, yeah. Yeah, and so what was it like for... And it is such, like, Will Ferrell and Adam McKay's world, right? Like... Yes. I would say, you know, you could make an argument, John C. Riley and Adam Scott are every bit as good as maybe even better than Will Ferrell in the film, like, in terms of being all amazing performances all around. You're brilliant in it as well. But, like, it's such this weird world that they, that those two dudes created. Right. What was it like as a person who was not of their world right. and who had had a long and successful career before that to, like, step into this world of, you know, Adam McKay behind a camera just yelling out weird specifics? And he does yell. And he sometimes even uses a megaphone, which he really doesn't need. But <laughs> now uh, I'm picturing him with one of those like cheerleader megaphones, it's like what the he wooden had. kind. Yeah, oh, the wooden where, kind. And he's even wearing, better. In my mind, he's also wearing jod purse. <laughs> <laughs> um, the reason I think I got that film is because Will and I did, um, we had done Elf together. We'd just done Elf together. And we just sort of couldn't stop laughing together. It was just one of those, you know, people that you realize is a dangerous person for you to even be in the same room with because you're not, you're going to lose all control. And I'm not like an SNL people. Those people never break and they're famous for it and they're amazing. And I, I know they're better actors than me, but I do break. I do start laughing. In fact, in Step Brothers, there's at least three shots where you can full on see that I'm losing it, you know? And when I would ask Adam, why'd you include that? He goes, Mary, I don't have any that you're not doing. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but, um, but we, so we had so much fun. So then Will called me and he said, would you be offended? Cause you blame my stepmom in that, but would you be offended if I asked you to play my actual mom? Cause in fact, I'm 11 years older than him. And I said, no, I would be really offended if you ask anybody else. So that's how I got to be in Step Brothers. And in answer to your question, on the first day, Richard Jenkins and I, in the first scene, I and actually have to ask Richard what it actually was, but I, I remember that it was in the house, and whatever it was, it was already so dazzling and so brilliant bet- with these two guys who just were deeply hilarious together whether it was the script or it was the afternoon improvisation mining what we'd found in the morning, which very often happened on that film. But we looked at each other and both of us just went, what are we doing here? Like, we can't do what they're doing the way they're doing it. Like, And both of us got so kind of freaked out for a few minutes. And then 
I said, Richard, I think that we just have to have the job of making it real that we're their parents. Because that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard that these guys are living with us. But if we can make it real that we're their parents, that's our job, you know, not not to compete with what they do because nobody could. I mean, it was unbelievable. And so that was our as, as soon as we both realized what we were doing there, we were we had the best time. And it was just every day was like a gift. I I did one scene with Will Ferrell where I'm driving him and he's sitting behind me in the car. And they show a few outtakes of it online. But the truth is, we never completed the scene. One of us would go every single take. And we finally, both of us were begging Adam to just let us go home. And we just said, please, we, we're we not going to get through this. And Adam wouldn't let us stop because he was just having so much fun torturing us. And we and he used part of the scene, but the scene truly never was fully realized because we couldn't stop laughing. Um, and I'm sort of embarrassed by it when I work with people that are way more disciplined than me. But I also kind of I'm just glad that I get to have that much fun. Your husband, Ted Danson, is also a brilliant actor. Agreed. The two of you have worked together a lot, so I'm sure that you talk about your work when you're working together. Um, but Kind of. Kind of. What do you mean by kind of? We don't talk, we don't talk about our work that much. We, we talk about other stuff a lot more. But anyway, go on. Do you, like, run lines together? Yes. We do that. We but do that. Do you make suggestions to each other when you're... Uh, um, we try to refrain, but I would say I'm probably worse than he is about making helpful hints. But I try to. I try not to. You're worse because you're too helpful? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> yeah. I'm too... I, I have an idea about, oh, you could do this, or, oh, you could think of this, or, yeah. I, I do, I've done that. I try not to do that. And he's done it too, but I've probably done it worse, true confession. But anyway, what were you going to ask about about us? No, that's later. That's the exact thing. Do I was we kinda, run lines together and help each other? What's it like when the two of you wrote that? And I feel like I'm getting a sense. Sometimes we get in a little fight because we're both so stubborn about and care so much about acting if we disagree. But mostly... Mostly, uh, God, we have, truthfully, we have a wildly peaceful relationship, one that I never thought I was ever going to find in this lifetime, but I did. So we don't fight a lot about it, but if we do, it's probably because I'm being annoying coming up with ideas <laughs> for him, which he has no need of whatsoever because he's brilliant. He is he is that person on that he is that person on a razor thin edge that just is so fast and knows how to make someone laugh. He also has this he is a truly kind and marvelous human being. And so there's there's also um a beauty in him that I think people fall in love with and can sense and feel no matter how flawed the character is or like Sam Malone is so vain 
but only somebody like Ted, who is clueless about his own beauty as a man. His He's very beautiful. He's very beautiful. And he really is so shocked every time I tell him that. Not fake shocked. Like, you can see that it's like, oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's like, what do you think is going on, you know? He's just a, a, a ridiculously entertaining human being to live with. By the time the two of you were in a relationship and getting married, he was already Ted Danson from Cheers. Like, he had already been the... Oh, yeah. One of the greatest characters in television, one of the greatest characters and performances in television history, at least American television history. Someone I intended, whose number I got, intending to literally call and just tell him how good he was and then sort of chickened out. Not flirting, not, nothing like that. No, didn't. I, I met him when he auditioned to play opposite me in Cross Creek, and he didn't get the part. And I remember him. I was 30. He was like 35. Cheers hadn't happened yet, or I hadn't seen it yet. I don't think they'd shot it yet. And he, at first, I dismissed him because I'm not really interested in just beautiful men, like pretty men. But then he did something or said something that made me laugh. And then I remember thinking, oh, that that guy's cool. And then crazy various people auditioned for this part, and it didn't go to him. It went to Peter Coyote. But I saw him then. I saw him at Henry Winkler's birthday party one time. We were both married to other people. And then I saw him once at the Clinton inauguration at something in D.C., and then this is such a great list of places to have seen so it before. So weird. And then <laughs> my we, wife and I met in high school. <laughs> you <laughs> did? Yeah. Well, that's not at the Clinton inauguration. <laughs> well, not um, at Henry Winkler's birthday party. I know. I know. And then, and then I had to fly. I had just been through a relationship that did not work, and I just told everyone who would listen and the gods that I am not good at relationships. I'm done. I have two children. They're amazing. That's all I need in this life. And I'm so lucky. So fine. We're done with that. And then I had to finish a film with Charles Grodin and not, not the same film, different film in Charles Grodin. And then, and then get on a plane having, been up all night because the script supervisor and the editor got married on the set at the end of the wrap, and I was like the maid, maid, matron, maid of honor. Maitre d'. <laughs> maitre d'. I was a maitre d'. And then I went from that set, having not been to sleep for, I mean, it was like a day, to go fly to um, San Francisco and have dinner with Ted Danson and the director of this film, Pontiac Moon, and see if we had so-called chemistry. It was that dumb thing where it's fine that the man's cast, but we don't cast the woman till we find out if the man likes the woman. And that was not uncommon, by the way. Um, and probably still is, but 
But anyway, um, I remember that he had this long hair uh, down to his shoulders. And uh, I went in the restaurant, and he said, oh, our table's over here. And I said, oh, okay, your hair is so long. And he said, oh, no, this is something called extensions. And see, look, and he shows me these, you know, where these little kind of welts or wefts or whatever they're called where your hair is <laughs> attached to your scalp. And and I said, oh, okay. And then I walked behind him, and he's tall, and he was like tossing his fake hair. And <laughs> and I walked behind him, and my initial real impression of my future husband was, this is the most ridiculous man I've ever met. And And then I proceeded to just you know, slowly, slowly, slowly fall madly in love with him. I still think he's the most ridiculous man I've ever met. I was going to say not, not ridiculous. Yeah, he's, he's, it's insane. It's really insane. But sort of fun fact, not that fun, but I was going through a divorce from my first husband, Malcolm McDowell, and I was sad, you know, and at night, to comfort myself, my going to sleep show to make me feel better about the world was cheers. Now I just sleep with Sam and I feel way better. Okay, this is the thing I want to ask you about this because obviously he's great on cheers. Yeah. Cheers is one of the best shows of all time. Yeah. I think he's been better since. He really leans into a quality that is not that far from one of your greatest gifts as an actor, which is, you know, on Cheers, he's like a Lothario and, a, you know, and his sweetness helps cut that, but it's not a very, it's not the sweetest performance always. More recently... Like there's there's this part on Port de Teff where he says he, he's he's been living like a demented god. <laughs> I do remember that. And like the the there is a there is an open heartedness yeah. to him describing his own bizarro awfulness. <laughs> Uh, like a sweetness and warmth. And I can only admit, like, it's one of the greatest, it's what allows you to be the parent of, on in Step, Step Brothers, is this sort of, like, warm, accepting quality of of yourself and others. Um, and I wonder if that's, like, just what's going on at your house? <laughs> You're just smiling about things and hugging the world. <laughs> well, there is, there, I can't say it's not like that. But yeah, we got to say that Jonathan Ames, who created that show, um, you know, and Jason Schwartzman and Zach Galifianakis, it, it was just kind of, lightning in a bottle it was just so good you're I was... so great you're so great on that show you're so wonderful on that show but i'm sincerely asking you like 
that to me is the special quality of your husband as an actor the last decade or decade and a half is him really leaning into that. And I wonder if you see it and if it's something you see in real life and if it's something you're able to recognize in yourself, because I think it is the same. It is a great gift that you have as well. Well, thank you. I probably know less about the me part of it, but watching him sometimes, even though I've lived with this person for 30 years and I know every crazy story from his, you know, childhood where he jumped bareback on a horse and rode across the Arizona desert every day with his Hopi and Navajo friends. That's how he grew up. His dad was an archaeologist. And I mean, I, I, I know who he is. You know, I, I've been to like his prep school reunion from Kent School in Connecticut and watch him come unglued as he gets closer and closer because instead of hail the big, fantastic movie TV star that you probably would think is coming to the reunion, it's suddenly this terrified kid from Arizona who's just doesn't even remotely know how to negotiate the world he's in. And that's who he becomes, even though he's an adult. And it just, I mean, I know all these secrets about him, but when I've watched him with great material like that, and uh, I also saw him do something at the Atlantic Theater one night, and it was a, it was it was just a very long, brilliant monologue. And I knew that the night before, he had gotten a third of the way into it and had totally forgotten every bit of it. And he called to Darcy, who's the stage manager, who was just settling down with her cup of coffee for a nice night, and said, "Line, Darcy," and you know, and Darcy gave him the line, but didn't give him the one he really needed, so he was still lost. And then somehow he stumbled back in, but was so freaked at the end of it that he had to walk around to get all that adrenaline out of his body. But I saw him the next night when he did remember every word of it, which I don't know how anybody would. It was so intricate. And it was so breathtakingly just brilliant. I was watching someone. I had no idea who who this person was. I was not watching my husband. I didn't see anything familiar. It was just a totally different person. And he was getting there, you know, the skin... <laughs> I mean, it was it was so ephemeral and so delicate and so not Ted, and so I've seen that, and and uh, I just respect him. I really know it's it's somebody, two people who love the craft of acting, who live together, and get to get to do this in life. We'll finish up my conversation with Mary Steenburgen in just a minute. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Mm. 
I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm talking with Mary Steenburgen. The award-winning actor stars alongside fellow award-winning actors Diane Keaton, Jane Fonda, and Candace Bergen in Book Club, the next chapter. So Book Club is in part for me as a viewer about getting to watch essentially Hollywood royalty goof around. <laughs> um, in Italy. Yeah. Or the new one is. And yeah. I'm not going to let you pass judgment on this, but I'm going to stipulate that you and your husband are Hollywood royalty. <laughs> um, do you, are you able to like get a kick out of that? Like, are you able to be, look, Henry Winkler was on this show, nicest dude in the world, like sincerely loveliest real human being ever. Right. But are you ever just like, hey, here I am, Henry Winkler's birthday party. This is great. <laughs> um, Yeah, I mean, definitely, I'll tell you where, I mean, I definitely enjoyed that party and I have memories of it and he he is definitely Hollywood royalty. I I had a really dear friend, Roddy McDowell, no relation to Malcolm McDowell. Names are spelled differently. But Roddy McDowell was a really dear friend of mine. And Roddy had these legendary dinners around, there was a round table. It was usually eight people, sometimes 10. And I, you know, I've definitely had a little uh, struggle in life with social stuff. To come and talk to you is fun and easy for me. If you invited me to a party somewhere, it, I would experience a whole other thing. And I've worked at it. I definitely have improved over the years with it. It's just something I think I know some of the reasons why it's long and it's boring. But anyway, um, it was scary for me to go to these things, but Roddy loved me and insisted that I come. And I was very often his like plus one, you know? And um, uh, so we would go and he would say, I have a little surprise for you tonight. You know, you sit there and you'll see who you're going to sit next to. And then Gregory Peck would come in and sit next to me. And I would spend the evening watching him flirting across the table with his wife, Veronique, and I would stare out of the corner of my eye at the way his beautiful hair kind of was just slightly over his gray turtleneck. And I mean, the intimacy and the craziness of it and that thing that you're saying about the Hollywood royalty thing. I mean, I don't know if I very much am capable of taking it fully in for myself, but I have gotten to be around extraordinary people. You know, he he would have me sit next, uh, you know, to Betty Davis because he would say, you know, Betty has a crush on Robert Wagner, and I want you to sit next to her and make her behave. And then Robert Wagner arrives, you know, but he's not alone and Betty starts, you know, saying all kinds of hilariously inappropriate, not unlike my friend Candace Bergen, but, but just being deeply funny and clearly did have like a total crush on him. 
And, um, you know, was it funny to Jill St. John? I don't think so. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> she was a good sport about it. You know, it was just like these crazy things would happen or Johnny Depp and Winona Ryder were there when they used to go out. And it was, it was this world of wonder that I would constantly be invited into. And, um, and I just feel so lucky for that experience. And I miss him. He, he really was one of my best friends. I, I miss him a lot. Well, I, I can honestly say, uh, feels that way for me to get to talk to you. Thank you very much for oh my goodness. taking the time to be on the show. Oh. It really, it well, really means a you. lot. Thank you. It's been uh, really an all over the place and fantastic um, conversation and will always remain, I'm sure, the only one in which I actually did a Meisner repetition <laughs> exercise <laughs> successfully, I might add. You did that very well with anyone that was interviewing me. So thank you very much. Well, I, I try and bring up Clifford in every show, so that is not going to be... <laughs> That's not going to end. ...to this one. Yeah. <laughs> Mary Steenburgen. Ah, what a joy. You can watch her in Book Club, the next chapter. It is very fun. And hey, have you watched Clifford? Watch Clifford. Clifford is amazing. Clifford is unbelievable. I mean, what is she not great in? But yeah, go watch Clifford. It's an experience like no other. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here at my house... I bought one of those tumbling compost bins. Then I realized when it came, I'd have to put it together. So I'm going to have to put the dang thing together. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellows at Maximum Fun are Tabitha Myers and Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Special thanks this week to Dina Weinstein for recording our conversation with Lonnie Listensmith out in Virginia, where he lives. Our interstitial music is composed and provided to us by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation. Thanks to them and Memphis Industries, their label, for sharing it with us. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us there. Give us a follow. We will share with you all of our interviews. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.